All right, this morning's passage, Romans, the 8th chapter, verses 31 through 34. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The Word of God. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we ask that your Spirit would speak to our hearts and minds this morning as we look to your words, as we find great comfort in these words. And Father, it is my prayer this morning that we only find comfort in these words if it is warranted. If we are not part of this group, may these words not comfort anyone. But may these words cause us all to look to our hearts, look to our affections to see if you are the center of our desires. And Father, I pray this morning that the words I speak be not mine, but be yours and bring you glory. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are again looking at a very powerful section of Scripture. This whole eighth chapter, I've told you several times before, I believe is perhaps the most entire, the most important and amazing chapter in the entire Bible. It's truly breathtaking whenever we look at it and all that it encompasses and the hope that we're able to glean from this eighth chapter. I believe these passages that we have before us this morning are of utmost importance and it is also of utmost importance that we understand they don't apply to everybody. And I want you to know and understand that because it's incredibly important that you do. I feel like that one of the most grave deceptions that we can have in this life is to believe that these scriptures apply to us and that we gain a great deal of confidence from these scriptures and that confidence is misplaced. And then when God takes us from this life and we meet him face to face and we begin the journey into the next life, I don't want anybody looking for me saying, but you told me that I'm supposed to be confident of the words in Romans 8. Yes, I did. But I want you to understand that not everyone is supposed to be confident of these encouraging words from Romans 8. They do not apply to everyone. And it's so incredibly important that we search ourselves and ask ourselves, are we in this group? Because if we are not, we're going to be on the outside and Romans 8 should be telling us that we've got bad things staring at us. That our journey is not going to be happy. That everything is not being worked for our good. That God is not shaping and forming this world so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. 
that would be a very terrifying thing to happen. To be fooled, to be misled, because we don't understand to whom these words apply. In an effort to comfort us, in an effort to give us confidence, I do not, repeat, I do not want to make you comfortable and feel warm and fuzzy about yourself if you're not in this group. Because that's not what Paul was trying to do. And you walk out those doors this morning and you feel warm and fuzzy and glad and confident and you're not in the group, you have no business feeling that. You should feel very uncomfortable, very inadequate, as if the weight of hell is bearing down on your shoulders. That is the danger we have whenever we look at this chapter and we see all the beauty and wonder that is far-reaching and is expressed by Paul through these words. These words should not be of encouragement to you if Jesus Christ is not your treasure. It's that simple. If you don't seek Him above everything else, these words should have no encouragement in your life. They should merely point you to the judgment that is coming. They should provide you with a great deal of discomfort. That seat should be all the more uncomfortable as you read and study these words. They should serve as a motivation to become one who is secure, who is confident, who treasures Christ above all else. So we jump back to a verse that we have covered for probably a month and a half. I'm still not done with it. Who's the group? Who's the group that gets comforted? Who's the group that gets all things worked for them? Those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Only them, nobody else. And so that's the question you have to ask yourself. Do you love Him and are you called according to His purpose? If you do not love Him, don't feel comfortable this morning. Don't walk out of here with a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart. Because it is a lie. But if they fit you, then you have nothing but comfort to feel from the words that are spoken this morning. Nothing but encouragement. Nothing but delight. Nothing but confidence in your heart. I said all that to make sure there's no misunderstandings. Because I don't want that to happen. I don't want you to be fooled in thinking, I'm okay. Brother Scott told me that Romans 8 applied to me and we're all good. Not. That's not what I'm saying. So if in fact it's not, or you're not in that group, then there's something that you need to do about it. But nonetheless, if you are, these passages are beautiful. And they demonstrate God's perfect governance over salvation, sanctification, and glorification.
They demonstrate His sovereignty over not only the world, but over our persons, over our hearts. And they demonstrate His love for us in a most beautiful way. If we are of the group that love God and are called according to His purpose. So I hope you see how this gets set up, that in order for us to take these great truths that we looked at or have been looking at for weeks, you've got to be of that group. You've got to know where you're at in Christ Jesus. He's got to be your treasure. You know and understand that He's the mere reason for every breath that you take. That you're not here to serve yourself and, oh, by the way, I'll go to church and that should take care of it. It's not going to work. It doesn't happen that way. So to set up verse 33, which is going to be the focus this morning, I want to jump back to verses 31 and 32. And we looked at these a couple weeks ago. Might have been longer. I think it was a couple weeks ago. Paul asked a question here. What shall we say to all these things? And we had just come through verse 28 Verse 29, those he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. So we've just come through all of that and we find ourselves at verse 31. What then shall we say to all those things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So he asks, us, he asks a question. If God is with us, who can be against us? Now, I want you to be careful whenever we answer that question. Because I'm telling you, there's a lot of folks against us. Okay? There's a lot of entities, people, things, dominions, powers. There's a whole lot against us. So that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying if God is our ally, then we have no enemies. That's not right. We have plenty of enemies. And he's going to tell us that later on. We have plenty of enemies, and that is the reality. And the Bible tells us that all over and over again. We, like lambs, are led to the slaughter. That's just who we are as Christians. We have enemies everywhere. We're persecuted everywhere. The reality is it's a question of efficacy or efficiency or effectiveness. We have enemies, but how effective are they? How good are they at condemning us? That is the question that's being portrayed here. If God is with us and we've got all kinds of enemies, how good are they going to be whenever they make war against us? That's the way the question's set up. And that's the point that Paul was going to make. Are they going to be successful as our enemies? So if we take that question and we say, if God is for us and we have enemies, but can they be successful in stealing and killing our eternity? The answer is obvious. Absolutely not. No one can. No one can be effective as our enemy. I want to give you some pushback. I'm not talking about things that happened on earth. 
Christians are martyred. Christians are killed. Christians suffer. Christians get all kinds of bad things done to them. Not what he's talking about. He's saying, do we have an enemy that's going to be able to destroy our eternity? No. Why? Because God is for us. Because it's Him that's on our side. And then he continues onward and he justifies what he's just said. He says, even though the world is falling down around us and we're caught in the middle of it, nothing can steal our eternity. Nothing can take away our salvation. Nothing. Cannot happen. And then Paul substantiates that statement by making an argument from greater to lesser. And I talked about this two weeks ago, but I want to go back over it again because this is such a beautiful argument for the security of our salvation and means so much to me when I look at this argument. An argument from greater to lesser is if if I can do something that's really hard and I can do that, then I know that I can do something that's really easy, right? If I can run 10 miles then I know I can walk a mile. It's an argument from greater to lesser. Paul uses this way of speaking over and over throughout all of his letters. And it's a beautiful way to make that argument. If I can run hard 10 miles, not stop, not have any problem, I can walk a mile. It's that simple. And that's exactly the point that Paul is making here. If God didn't spare His Son... If he had someone that was so close to him as his own son, and he didn't spare his own son. That's the hard thing, right? That's the running ten miles. If God did not spare his own son from being sent to this sinful, vile, awful earth, being beaten, spat upon, mocked, scourged, bloodied, crucified, died, our sins placed on him. If God didn't spare his own son all of that, do you not think he's going to give us everything we need to make it to eternity? That's the easy thing, right? That's the walk one mile whenever I can run 10 miles. That's the logic that Paul sets up here. God did something that was really hard in that he sent his own son to this earth, but keeping us keeping us secure in our salvation for all eternity, that's easy. That's walking a mile for God. That's that's no problem at all. He didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Do you not think He's going to graciously give us all things we need to make it to eternity? If God does not sustain us, If God does not keep us to the end, and there is a risk that we can fall out, what does it do to the sacrifice of His Son? I made this point two weeks ago, and I hope you got it then, but I want to go back over it because I think it's a big deal. If God doesn't keep us all the way to the end, what does it say for the sacrifice of Jesus? It makes it worthless. It would be foolish 
foolish for God to make such a sacrifice to send his own son to die for our sins to only allow us to screw it all up afterwards. That's foolishness. That would be a waste. That would mean whatever Christ did really didn't mean anything. God put safeguards in place for our salvation so that the sacrifice of His Son will always be the most valued commodity in our lives. Always. He put safeguards in place to protect us such that we're always pointing backwards to the Savior. And He always gets glorified. Those safeguards ensure the preeminence of Christ. They ensure that what He did is the greatest thing anyone could ever do. I hope that you can all see that we are the beneficiaries of God's plan to glorify His Son. That's what this was all about. Glorify His Son and we're the beneficiaries of it. If He sent His Son for us to be glorified and we squandered it, the Son's sacrifice would be worthless. Right? If if Jesus was going to do this wonderful thing, give us eternal life, and He comes to earth to give us eternal life, and yeah, that's good, and I squander it away, that sacrifice is worthless. It has no meaning whatsoever. It was useless. I want to give you an analogy. And I always have this footnote to my analogies. They're not very good, eh? Because they have their own frailties, right? If you want to take one of my analogies and run with it, it's going to fall apart, okay? Because I'm, I'm trying to analogize something that we know and feel and taste here on earth with God, and I am very, very poor at doing that. Do any of you garden? Nobody gardens. Carol gardens. Lori, I know you garden. We have some gardeners. So you take money, right? You take money that means something to you because you've worked hard for it. You've worked for your money and you take your money and you go and you buy seeds or you buy plants. And you plant those seeds or you plant those plants. So what do you do after that, you've bought the seeds with your money that was dear to you. You've, you've bought the seeds, plants, you put them in the ground. Do you just walk away now? Believe me, I've done that, haven't we, Steph? Yeah. Brady, yeah. My boys last year decided they were going to garden. Yeah, about August it got real. June. Okay. You don't stop there. You can't stop there because if you stop there, it's, you're not going to have anything, right? Weeds are going to take it. Animals are going to eat it. Bugs are going to destroy it. Everything that you spent that money on is going to be worthless. Instead, if you really want to take care of your investment, you don't just leave them on their own. You cultivate your plants. You keep the weeds from growing up around them. You put bug dust on them to keep the bugs from eating them and destroying them. 
You may put up a fence to keep the raccoons or the critters away from them. But you do everything in your power to make sure that your investment, your money, gets a return at the end of the season. Right? Because if you would have taken your money and bought the seeds and left them there and then everything destroyed them, you'd just as well to take your money and set it on fire and let it burn because it was worthless. Hopefully, that analogy, as poor as it is, will help you understand what I'm talking about with Christ. Christ, the investment in our lives. And so He comes to save us. But God's just not going to leave us be and not ensure us that we get to eternity because if He lets us do something to screw up this garden, then He just as well to burn His Son. It was worthless. Just like that money that you use to buy your plants and just let them go to waste. He only gets glorified. Jesus only gets glorified if He protects us If he ensures that we make it to the end. And I hope that you can see that because it's so important in understanding the security in our salvation and God's sovereignty in our salvation. The glory of his son is only revealed when we make it to the end. If we don't make it to the end, Jesus didn't do anything to help us. And God doesn't play that way. That's not part of his plan. He weeds us. He puts bug dust on us. And He keeps us from critters. Keeps us from ourselves. Whatever it may be that's going to try to drag us away from eternity. So that sets up verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Paul asks another question that was very similar to the one we saw in 31. Who can be against us if God is for us? But here he asks, who can bring any charge against God's elect? So his focus shifts ever so slightly. His focus turns to to judgment of sort. A charge, the Greek word for charge actually means an accusation. Who's going to accuse you? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Again, that's not really the question. There's going to be a lot of accusations. There's going to be a lot of charges, right? Most of them true. Wow. Especially with respect to me, right? There's going to be a lot of well-founded charges that The enemy or whoever else can bring against us and we would be guilty. Mine would fill this entire sanctuary and then some. So the question isn't who's going to bring a charge. The question is who's going to be successful in bringing that charge? Who can get a conviction? That's the bigger question. You say, well, we've got a different word here. God's elect. Well, we just jump right back up to 828. God's elect are those who love Him, those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 29, those He foreknew, those He predestined, those He justified, and those He glorified. God's elect. 
Who's going to bring a successful charge against the? Who's going to bring a successful charge against us? Going to be plenty of charges, plenty of accusations, plenty of claims that we did everything wrong. And you know what? It's going to be true, isn't it? It's going to be true. But we, but Paul asked us this question. It's not going to be successful. It can't be successful. Why can't it be successful? He answers it in the second part. Because who saves us? It's God. God is the one that saves us. And because He's in charge of the saving, nobody else can question it. He's at the top. He alone is holy. He alone decides who is righteous and who is not. There's no appeal that anyone can make to a higher court. It's not like me whenever I say you're guilty or not guilty. This is way beyond that. When God has declared us not guilty because of His Son, nobody else can go up the ladder to the Supreme Court. It would be, in human terms, like the Supreme Court, only different. The Supreme Court just deals with one charge at a time, right? So if you are charged with murdering someone and you appeal it and you go theoretically all the way to the Supreme Court, they say, no, you're not guilty. You're good to go, but you're only good to go on what you just did. You're not good to go on everything. This is way more than that. This is God saying, we're saved. We've been forgiven. The debt's been paid by Jesus in full of everything that we've done, of every sinful thought that we've had, of every action that we've done. Everything. It's over. There's no higher entity to go to. Satan can't run to somebody over God and say, well, I'm going to get his opinion. No. God is the last word on this. And he is the one who justifies. Nobody else. The focus is not on the salvation, but on the who of the salvation, right? The focus of this, it is God who justifies. Our focus isn't on the justification. The focus is on who's doing it. The fact that God's doing it means nobody else is going to question it. Or nobody else can touch it. That God is sovereign over all of these matters when it relates to our salvation. Everything always points back to Jesus. And that's the beauty of Christianity. That's the heart of Christianity. Everything points back to Jesus. If we ever find ourselves in a situation where we're starting to point it back to ourselves, we're in a wrong place. We're in an extremely bad misunderstanding of what salvation is. Christ died for our sins that were committed in the past, when we accepted Him, and in the future, all the way to when we enter into eternity. God has declared us once and for all not guilty. Not guilty. And that never changes. There is, to answer the question, no one who can bring a successful charge against God's elect. But, as I said at the beginning, it is against God's elect. If you're not of that group, 
that loves God and are called according to His purpose, please have no warm feelings about this message because it doesn't apply to you. Have every feeling that the judgment is coming and it's going to rain down on me. I want you to be uncomfortable because that's what God wants. But for those of us who love God and are called according to His purpose, I want you to find such beauty and joy and comfort knowing there's nothing that anybody's going to do to steal your salvation. There's nothing that you're going to do to give it away. And you are going to be secure. Why? Because you're going to make sure the Son is glorified in the end. That's why. That's why. So as I close, have those feelings of comfort and encouragement as we leave here this morning for those of us who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank You for these remarkable Scriptures, these Scriptures that are, or were written to comfort us in difficult times, to give us understanding and the knowledge of Your sovereignty in our salvation and Your plan and how beautiful it is and how much You love us that You sent Your own Son to die for us, Father. We know that You will give us all things that we need to make it to the end, to make it to eternity with You. May we always glorify Jesus in everything that we do. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.